Cross by Langston Hughes. My old man's a white old man, and my old mother's black. If I ever cursed my white old man, I'd take my curses back. If I ever cursed my black old mother and wished she were in hell, I'm sorry for that evil wish, and now I wish her well. My old man died in a fine big house. My ma died in a shack. I wonder where I'm going to die, being neither white nor black. Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren. That opening poem gives me concerns. Yeah, yeah, as you might, as listeners might be able to tell from the title of the episode and the poem that I read, today is Tragic Mulatto Day. Here's your screaming pillow, babe. <laughs> Alright, so, a little background. Most of the sources that I've, I'm using, um, including Black Theater USA and uh, Ferris.edu, define the term mulatto as the diminutive for mule from the Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, Black History USA goes on to say that it was a way to stigmatize people who were mixed race as something less than human. Yay! So, they also go through the other terms that basically broke down the mixes. Quadroon, octoroon, half-breed. Gah! Mulatto is kind of an all-encompassing term for these. Uh, and then, technically, I would be considered half-breed, since my dad's black and my mom is Italian and Dutch. So, yeah, there's, there's that. That being said... Don't you dare call me any of those terms. I'm throw hands. See, I was gonna... Said that now. <laughs> and then my brain was like, quick, it's heavy. Make a joke. And I was like, oh, you may be a half breed, but you're full cute. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, gosh. Working on lines for the White Savior movie. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to give spoilers. So, the trope of the tragic mulatto started during the antebellum era, and according to ferris.edu and a couple of other sources, it was introduced to literature by Lydia Marie Child, who was an abolitionist. Now, a little bit of background, not all abolitionists were anti-racist. Some were actually incredibly racist. Yeah, I learned that recently too and was like, what the actual yeah yeah uh lots didn't see black people as humans or as equals some thought that black people were just inherently stupid and docile creatures some wanted all black people to just leave america and some were like well if we abolish slavery it's to save our souls and not necessarily in it for the people that were actually being enslaved Right idea, but for the wrong reason. Exactly. And a lot were pro-segregation. 
because they didn't want black people around after they were freed. Man, you know, I don't even separate the the lights from the darks in my laundry, so... (laughs) I love that joke, by the way. Oh, my gosh. So, um, Lydia wasn't exactly racist because she did feel... (laughs) Not exactly racist. Racist adjacent. Yeah, actually. (laughs) Because for the time, she was very ahead of the curve because she felt... Well, she she had argued that black people were identically or identical intellectually to Europeans, which is a huge nice. step for the time. However, she created this trope with her 1842 story, The Quadroons. Hmm. Okay. This trope was originally called the Tragic Mulata, meaning what happens with women who were born from the union of a white man and a black slave. Oh, no. Oh, no. So, this it, it, this is when miscegenation laws were coming around, and they were being supported and written about because, according to Lydia and several others before the 70s, and sadly still to this day... According to them, mixing the races was bad and always led to tragic results. It only leads to tragic results because of people who are a-holes that have issues. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, this is going to be a hard one. This is going to be a hard episode till we get to Langston Hughes, and then it'll be a little bit easier, and then we'll read the play, and then it'll be a little bit hard, so... Oh, no. (laughs) I love you so much, and that was a really cute thing you just did now. I'm glad you thought it was cute. (laughs) Uh, I I need to find moments of joy in what's going to be Yes, yes. So, in the Quadroons, we have our tragic Mulata character, who is a light-skinned woman named uh, Zarafia. She is the product of her mother Rosalie's relationship with a white man, a relationship that's doomed because... Uh, this man ends up marrying a white woman for political leverage and financial gain and wants Rosalie, his quadroon, to stay on as his mistress, something that she refuses. <sighs> she dies of a broken heart, and it's made clear that her broken heart is not only from seeing her former lover with his new wife, but also because she was neither black nor white and she felt she was inadequate because of her blackness. And her daughter is taken in by people who work for her father, who's basically trying to buy his daughter's love while drowning himself in alcohol to try and numb the guilt over Rosalie. And then he dies. And then everyone finds out that Zarafia is part black, and because she's part black, she's enslaved. Oh, God. Because Zarafia, in, in the words of the book, learned no lessons of humility or shame within her happy home, For she grew up in the warm atmosphere of her father and mother's love like a flower, open to the sunshine and sheltered from the winds. This spells disaster because her father had neglected to put in papers of manumission, something that would have labeled her as free. Her life with her master is described here. 
Her purchaser treated her with respectful gentleness and sought to win her favor by flattery and presence, but she dreaded every moment lest the scene should change and trembled at the sound of every footfall. Now, Zarafia had been in love with her white harp teacher, George, and she tries to escape, but was ratted out, and so George is killed, and Zarafia goes insane and dies. Probably for a broken heart, but Lydia never says either way. This is going to be common in these. So, this story, as well as her other story, uh, Slavery's Pleasant Homes, influenced other authors, both black and white, including tone-deaf alumnus William Wells Brown with his story Clotel or The President's uh, Daughter. I think that's what it was. So, the common theme with these is that the tragic mulatta or mulatto, usually one who could pass as white, hates their black side and wants to deny it and get rid of it, leading to heartbreak, insanity, and then death. And death was the only remedy for this quote-unquote horrible condition because they were to be scorned. They're a cautionary tale for everyone. (laughs) So black author Sterling A. Brown talked about this trope when he was basically like defining these different tropes in the 1920s and trying to combat the myths surrounding them. Uh, He also describes one trope that's the brute Negro trope. The idea that Mm. black men needed to be enslaved and it led to a lot of the putting black men in chain gangs post-reconstruction. And for more on that, see John Edgar Tidwell's writing on Sterling A. Brown on the project on the history of black writing. I highly suggest reading through this source anyway because it is amazing. It's an online resource. Anyone can read him. So this is what Sterling A. Brown said on The Tragic Mulatto. White writers insist upon the mulatto's unhappiness for other reasons. To them, he is the anguished victim of divided inheritance. Mathematically, they work it out that his intellectual strivings and self-control come from his white blood, and his emotional urgings, indolence, and potential savagery come from the Negro blood. Their favorite character, the Octoroon, is wretched because of the single drop of midnight in her veins, desires a white lover above all else, and must therefore go down to a tragic end. All these people. I mean... Uh, I can, I can use the bleep. I've got the bleep button, so, yeah. One drop of midnight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a lot like the one drop rule. Yep. So, uh, this trope shows up, like I said, in both black and white writing. Uh, you have Vara Cosprey and Jeffrey Barnes writing novels, The White Girl and Dark Luster, respectively, <laughs> where the light-skinned mulatta dies tragically. In The White Girl, she poisons herself after being outed as black, and in Dark Luster, she dies in childbirth with the child living a cycle of pain. Also, they're shown to hate their black suitors because self-hating and racism. Mixed men are treated just as badly, and we've talked, of course, about Birth of a Nation, but they're also destined for self-hating and tragedy. This wasn't limited to the 1800s or early 1900s either. Imitation of Life, which is one of my least favorite movies because no! (laughs) 
has the light-skinned daughter, Piola, absolutely hate her black mother, causing her mother to die of a broken heart, and Piola is there to be hated by the audience, because she is a product of race mixing, and race mixing is bad. Um, it actually became a term for self-hating mixed-race women, specifically the white-passing ones, the term Piola. Oh. And the actress herself who played her was a rare case of an actual white passing black actress it playing a tragic mulatta. Um, well, I guess not the rare case of an actual white passing black actress playing one, but she was... A lot of times you would have a white woman play these characters and then just make her up a little bit, and they mm. did have to do that with this woman, but... Only a little bit of Only blackface. a little bit. And because she wasn't quite dark enough to show that, yes, she's part black, but she couldn't play any roles except for these because she wasn't black enough to play the roles that were available for black women in the 30s and 50s. Mean slaves. And mammies. And she wasn't allowed to play a white woman because she stated that she was black and she identified as black. And... This led to her later dying at the age of 42, overdosing on antidepressants. Aww. So, Showboat is another one that we're going to cover later that has a tragic mulatta who ends up alcoholic. After the scene uh, in the first act where her husband pricks her hand and then sucks on sucks out the blood so that he can have a drop of black blood in him so he can be legally married to her. Hammerstein tried. <laughs> I love that, though. Yeah, like, like, that line is one of those, like, oh, wow, good job, Hammerstein, and then it's like, ah, you tried, but then you fell into this, my, this trope. My romantic side loves that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he, it's, it's one of those things where you've got this really You've got this good for the time thing, and then you've got this gay. Remember when we were first dating? <laughs> so it doesn't work that way, but you yes, can it tell does. the story. Yes, it does. <laughs> if if a drop of blood being sucked out of a finger works in the context of that, then you grating off a piece of your finger when making macaroni and cheese, and then me eating that piece. I mean, there had to have been a drop of blood in that chunk of flesh. I don't think there was, because I wasn't bleeding after it, but... but... I have consumed your flesh. That means I have some of your flesh within me. That just that just means that you are the uh you are truly saved in the Church of K. <laughs> <laughs> You've eat, taken K communion. Eat of this mac and cheese for it is my flesh. <laughs> t-shirt <laughs> okay okay so 
The Ferris.edu article talks a little bit about the reality of life as a mixed-race person. First, they bring in something that historian E.B. Reuter says that eh, we'll get to it. So, he says, in slavery days, they were most frequently the trained servants and had the advantages of daily contact with cultured men and women. Many of them were free and so enjoyed whatever advantages went with that superior status. They were considered by the white people to be a superior intelligence to the black Negroes and came to take pride in the fact of their white blood. When possible, they formed a sort of mixed-blood caste and held themselves aloof from the black Negroes and slaves of the lower status. Which, bit of a generalization. I was going to say, from everything I've ever heard and seen, that doesn't seem accurate. It's, it's one of those things where colorism exists, however, at this point in period, you're going to want your screaming pillow. Uh, okay. Lighter-skinned black people did fetch a higher price sometimes and were more desirable, but not for the reasons that he's talking about. The women were especially more desirable because they were bought as sexual objects. I, uh, I already knew that. <laughs> they were not exempt from being beaten and whipped and raped, and the term mongrel was used a lot to describe them, and legally, they were still full blacks. Mulatto women were actually more likely to get raped by their masters because forbidden fruit. They were white-appearing, but legally black. Gary B. Nash summarizes this saying, Though skin color came to assume the importance through generations of association with slavery, white colonists developed few qualms about intimate contact with black women, but raising the social status of those who labored at the bottom of society and who were defined as abysmally inferior was a matter of serious concern. It was resolved by ensuring that the mulatto would not occupy a position midway between black and white. Any black blood class classified a person as black, and to be black was to be a slave. By prohibiting racial intermarriage, winking at interracial sex, and defining all mixed offspring as black, white society found the ideal answer to its labor needs. Its extracurricular and inadmissible sexual desires, its compulsion to maintain its culture purebred, and the problem of maintaining, at least in theory, absolute social control. So, in theater, we have several plays that talk about the tragic, the quote-unquote tragedy of miscegenation and the tragic mulatto. Um, in The Octoroon by Dion uh, Bouchacult, the American ending had the mulatto die at the end because that's what Americans wanted to see. <laughs> in England, however, she didn't die because by 1859, England was slightly better regarding race. Only slightly. Only slightly. There are many other plays where the mulatto is discovered as black and disgraced, or where the mulatto is violent and dies in the end, such as the one we'll be covering today. But there were some exceptions, such as the blue-eyed black boy, blue blood, and sun boy, where, hey, he doesn't die in the end. Unfortunately, when we get to the 60s next year, you'll see that this trope lasted a long, long time. So... The play that we'll be covering and the playwright we'll be covering uh, is the next step that we're going to go to. But do you want to say anything before I get to Langston Hughes? 
I want an Iron Man suit mm -hmm. and a time machine mm -hmm. and a way home. Mm -hmm. And those are my three wishes. Where's my genie? All right. You're you're gonna want to go back in time and uh, free some people, huh? And maybe do some upheaval societally. <laughs> you know what's funny is to say go back in time and free some people, and I was like, honestly, that wasn't what I was thinking. It was more of going to be there won't be anybody to tell them what to do, so I guess they will be free by default. That's fair. That's that's a good, it's a good thing. I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't fault you, honestly, because it, it is infuriating. History books will read, and then a metal man came out of the sky, and all the plantations in the south burned to the ground. <laughs> he handed out money, <laughs> and then at gunpoint made people sign laws <laughs> that... <laughs> that uh, abolished all of these racist institutions at the start. And now my brain is, the wheels in my brain are turning about an, a speculative fiction alternate wheels history. Wheels in your brain keep on turning. Yes. Sorry, that was a, that was a very nerdy joke there. All right, so. I, I have said my bit, Kay. You have said your bit? You all can, right. You can usher us into this new and exciting world of pain. So, uh, not too much, I mean, it's a little bit of pain for me because I strongly identify with Langston Hughes and we'll get to it in a bit, a couple of reasons why. So Langston Hughes, born James Mercer Langston Hughes, was born February 1st, 1902 in Joplin, Missouri. His parents, Caroline Langston and James Nathaniel Hughes, were both mixed-race black people. Their ancestry is super co complicated. Holy smokes. I was trying to see if I could, like, do a Cliff Notes version, and I couldn't. Okay. So, James ended up leaving for Mexico after Caroline became pregnant with their second child, Langston, <laughs> because he wanted to flee segregation, and Mexico was actually a pretty popular choice at the time for black people to free to. Or flee to. In fact, that was another stop in the Underground Railroad. Like, you could either go down to Mexico, where slavery was abolished, or you could go up to Canada, where slavery was abolished. Um, Do you like it hot or cold? Exactly. And so, at the age of five, Carolyn and Langston moved to Mexico to join James, only re to return to America and move to Lawrence, Kansas in 1907 after the April 14th earthquake, which had impacted Langston pretty understandably if you're a little kid and you see this horrific earthquake. So Caroline ended up leaving him in the care of her mother while she set up a life in Topeka, bringing Langston back there when uh, she was more stable uh, with income and everything, which is where he got his... A harsh reality of being a black child in a white society. His principal wanted him to go to the much further away Washington School, which was for colored children. But Caroline took her case to, or for Langston to go to the white school nearby to the Topeka Board of Education and won, only for Langston to end up having to go back to live with his grandmother. By the way, Segregated schools wouldn't be federally abolished until 1954, which is decidedly a long time after this case. That also, is way longer than I 
Yes. Yeah, Brown versus the Board of Education. Oh. So, Mm -hmm. uh, not all schools were non-segregated at that time. And I think that some have just recently been desegregated. And then you get to redlining, busing, etc. So that's still an issue, y'all. So, Langston lived with different relatives until adolescence when he moved to Lincoln, Illinois to live with his mother again. She was now remarried. And this is where you get to see his love of poetry flourish. And he ended up getting elected as class poet in his English class. And this is where he kind of talks about I realize now that I was kind of stereotyped, and I'll, I'll read his own words. So, I was a victim of stereotype. There were only two of us Negro kids in the whole class, and our English teacher was always stressing the importance of rhythm in poetry. <laughs> well, everyone knows, except us, that all Negroes have rhythm, so they elected <laughs> me as the class poet. <laughs> yup. <laughs> So, Langston's dad, James, wasn't in his life much. Langston moved to Mexico in 1920 after graduating and was hoping to have a relationship with his father. And to quote him, he said, I had been thinking about my father and his strange dislike of his own people. I didn't understand it because I was a Negro and I liked Negroes very much. Now, James also hated white people. He hated both white people and he just had this disgust for lower kids lower class black people like my i hear that and i'm like going i can understand not liking white people because they enslaved Mm -hmm. you and then the i think the dislike of black people comes with the fact that they were slaves so it's like it's it's yeah i mean Mm -hmm. i i it's unfortunate but when i look at it it's a bit of self-hating yeah he's self-hating both sides because it's a really crappy situation to be in because Mm -hmm. racism is garbage slavery was a terrible evil and it's the scars of it are engraved on your soul yes yes they are and they're engraved on your soul for generations again see every time that i say that we're still going through this so james had wanted langston to study abroad and to go into engineering and he would only support his son if he did this he did not support langston's desire to be a writer The strain in this relationship was further exasperated because, according to a lot of sources, Langston Hughes was decidedly not straight. He may even have been asexual, according to his main biographer, due to the very few relationships he had, being more passive. And some unpublished poems did indicate that he may have been homoromantic, but he was closeted because being a gay black man at this time career suicide, and possibly actual suicide. So, Langston went to Columbia University from 1920 to 1922, leaving after experiencing racial prejudice from his teachers and ending up in Harlem, just in time for the Harlem Renaissance. He wanted to focus on his writing, and other than saving for, uh, other than finishing his college career with a BA from Lincoln University, in Pennsylvania in 1929, and a couple of travels to England, the USSR, and the Caribbean, Harlem was his home base. His first poem to be published in the crisis was The Negro Speaks of Rivers, and I'll read it for you because it's one of those ones that a lot of people 
don't realize that they've heard until they hear it. So That's my life. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when the dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I took, looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky ri rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Um, and that poem is actually referenced because after he died, his ashes were interred under this... Uh, Mur under this tile work that is at uh which which museum is it again uh at the schomburg center for research in black culture in harlem and it's it's at the entrance to this auditorium that's named for him and they have this uh this like almost a tile set that's uh in in the foyer of it and the po the uh tile sets called rivers and within the middle of it it says my soul has grown deep like the rivers cool so there's there's that and i'll show you a picture of where his ashes are interred there's that That's beautiful yeah it's it's beautiful and uh we we won't talk too much on his death uh right now but his po his last poem was also published in the crisis and that's where most of his poems are going to be originally published. But we're a theater podcast, so we're going to talk about one of his plays now, specifically Mulatto. Uh, Mulatto isn't his first play. Mulebone, his 1931 collaboration with Zora Neale Hurston is, but it is one of his more well-known. We'll probably cover Don't You Want to Be Free next year, since... <laughs> Since that is a little bit more indicative of the writing style he would later come to use for his plays. I will gladly pay, pay you Tuesday for my freedom today. I don't want to get into it because I don't want to talk about it until we talk okay. about Sorry. it. But... Sorry. So this play, Mulatto, is an early example of combining both generational issues and race relations. And Hughes actually used this play to point out that the issue of the tragic mulatto is not born of the union of a black person and a white person, but it's born out of racism. Mm -hmm. And it was a reaction to another play by Paul Green called In Abraham's Bosom. The main character of this play was a self-hating black man who, to quote Black Theater USA, disliked poor black people and found white people intolerable. Sounding a bit like his dad. Hughes sees this play and is pissed. So, our main character of this play is going to be a mixed man who identifies as black, but also feels that he should have the same rights as a white man, which is a recipe for disaster for this character in the 30s. This is also one of Hughes' only tragedies. He mostly wrote musicals and comedies among his almost 100 plays. But unfortunately, this play was produced and opened before he could do another rewrite because the white producer that had it was like, okay, time to go into production. And Hughes wasn't allowed to participate in the production of this play. And so when it opened uh, October 24th, 1935, 
it was completely different from what Hughes wanted. It was a melodrama now. It had a rape scene added because oh, it'll geez. sell tickets. Yeah, that's what audiences really want. And this show had mixed reviews because it didn't do what Hughes was intending to. And he wanted to point out the issues of race relations and how colorism is bad and these stereotypes are bad because Hughes was very anti-colorism. He was very much like, no, we're all black people. We should all be supporting each other. This is ridiculous. And because uh, there is colorism where yeah. some light-skinned people will be like, yeah, I'm better than you because you're darker skinned. And there's a lot of the, like, skin bleaching creams and stuff that are marketed to make your skin lighter be and get rid of the black that's there. And it's like, no, that, uh-uh, none of that. The scars of racism are etched on people's souls. Yep. And so it's it's one of those things where, like... I, I just, I get so mad with it, so... Me too, honey. Yep. Uh, I, I hate it. So, even with the mixed reviews, this was the longest-running black play until 1959 with Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin, a Raisin in the Sun. Uh, Mulatto ran for 373 performances on Broadway. It had an eight-month tour of the U.S. and then went to Italy for two years. The original cast included some greats, such as Mercedes Gilbert and Rose McClendon, who were two of the most talented black actors in the era, and in 1950, Jan Meyerowitz adapted the play into an opera titled The Barrier. <sighs> so with all this being said, are you ready for the 1K production of Mulatto? This will be one of the last 1Ks for this year, thank God! <laughs> <laughs> I am as ready as I will ever be. Yes, and after this, we will uh, grab some of that delicious Mountain West cider that we got for I think, ourselves. I think we'll need it. Yes. So with that being said, let's go. Hey, Warren. Hey, Kay. Do you know what time it is? Is it time to thank our favorite people in the whole world? Heck yeah! Today, we would like to thank our stage crew sponsor, Jasmine Wu, and our producer circle sponsors, Bianucci, Reagan, and Taylor Brandt. Thank you all so much for your support of our show. We truly appreciate it. Today, I want to highlight an amazing podcast that I can't believe it's taken me this long to start listening to. The Black Guy Who Tips is a great podcast hosted by Rod and Karen. This show has some of the best insight that I have seen that's delivered in such a fun way. I highly recommend this show to older audiences. Younger audiences should probably wait for a little while because there is some strong language in it. But I recommend that y'all check this out on your favorite podcatcher. And now, the lights are going down and the music starting back up. So let's head back to the second act of our show. Well, we already know what Latte thinks. I have some pictures that you can uh, 
share when you post this episode, mm-hmm. if you want. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. She joined us for the reading. So, yeah, Latte, towards the end, because uh, Kay's reading was really good and very emotional, and Latte came out of her crate, jumped up on the bed, and was just like, like at, at Kay, just being like, Mom, why are you doing this to yourself? And I've yeah. got some cute pictures of her with with uh, Kay's hand, and just the look on Latte's face is pretty great. But yeah, yeah. Sweet, sweet, uh, wonderful, beautiful Latte doesn't understand why all of this is going on. Nope, she does not, so... Uh... But about the tragic mulatto... Yeah, the the mulatto, uh, southern tragedy. Mulatto, mm-hmm. southern tragedy. Wow. Mm-hmm. Like, I hate the whole, just same as you, I hate the whole tragic mulatto thing. Mm-hmm. But boy, did he write a good tragedy. Like, Yes. That's why I chose this one to highlight it rather than like Funny House of a Negro, which will be in night... It, it's in 1964, so we can't do that one yet because I'm not there yet. But this was yeah. really good. Like I, I was really, really, really impressed with it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, not like partly in a good way and partly in a bad way, just because I hate everything surrounding this. Yes, but the way that he wrote it was really well done and yes. the way that you read it really brought it to life thanks babe um my throat hurts now oh i do not blame you like I... you you were doing like you honey you i i was really seeing a lot of your your theater experience and your acting <laughs> thanks, with babe. this i was like i said i was really impressed and i hope that we're able to get whoever holds the rights to these to let us release them mm-hmm. because they were good thank um, you but yeah, okay. Whew, where do we start with this? Um, Mulatto, a southern tragedy, right? That's why I got that right? Something like that. Let me look um, at it again. Mulatto, a tragedy of the deep south. Tragedy of the deep Langston, MF, and Hughes. Yep, Langston Hughes. That man is... And he's an artist. Is the I just... Yeah. He's he's very impressive. And um, again, he doesn't do tragedies really after yeah, this for this place. Well, it's kind of like, and you know, which which is interesting that dynamic because uh, it always makes me think of the fact that a lot of comedians and a lot of comedy writers have depression. Yeah, stuff like that. There's something about the the you know the duality of it of using of having a lot of internal uh, torment, but you yeah. are able to create a lot of joy and humor yes um it's a weird dichotomy that i don't know why it exists but it's it's common there. enough that it it's 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 kind of a trope in and of itself mm-hmm. but anyway anyway langston you know rest in peace my dude this uh yeah mm-hmm. uh respect um uh, I should have filmed that. That was kind of no, cute. No, no, that was that's probably the whitest thing I've done all day. Uh, um, okay, 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 okay. So let's start with it. It starts with is it Coraline? Cora. Cora. Why that should be easy for me to. Yeah. Why? Do, 
that should be okay. Duh. Korra. Uh, so the, the whole thing starts with uh, Korra, who is the... I almost want to say the term house slave because that's mm -hmm. it, this this takes this story takes place after the Civil War after the Emancipation Proclamation mm -hmm. but after World War One oh it takes place after World War One yes. yes it does jeez okay so yeah okay it takes place after World War One but things are still incredibly okay that's right because they still have the Jim Crow and mm -hmm. yeah and they're sharecropping during this um, did you ever read Roll of Thunder Hear My Cry no. Oh, man. I don't know if it's still required reading, but it should be if it's not, because it's so good. It hurts, but and the whole trilogy is so good. But anyway, it's in that sort of sharecropping era. Did you read Sounder? No. Hmm. More often than not, if you say, did you read? Okay. And they're like, all right, all I, right. <laughs> my, unfortunately, my body of things that I have read because of my nystagmus and how much trouble I have with reading sometimes, like, no I, worries. I, that's babe. why I do audiobooks. No worries. Anyway. So you might have to, because I'm still feeling things and still thinking, so you may have to help me with some of the timeline on stuff. It no opens. Worries. It opens up with with Cora's daughter first, right? Like, because they're... Yeah, Cora and Thomas Norwood. Thomas, yeah, Thomas Norwood, Norwood is... is the colonel, uh -huh. uh, and he is in... He's the owner of this plantation, and mm -hmm. he's not a nice... He's an... Okay, he is a little bit of an interesting character mm -hmm. because he's a racist piece of s***. Oh, oh, he's a racist... <laughs> it's fine. He's a racist individual. Mm -hmm. Um... But there are parts that are revealed later that kind of allude to the fact that maybe he knew better, but he, he was did know better. But he was a product of his time and just stuck with the status quo of subjugation and discrimination. Yeah, I'll have to have you elaborate on it more, like as as we get to that part, yes. because I'm sure you know more about it, and especially reading it, you understand it better. But anyway. So Robert, not sorry, not Robert, Tom, Tom and Cora, Tom is the, the white man, Cora is his not wife, because um, after his white wife died, he never remarried, but instead he was taken up with, you know, one of the, the head maid, she's almost like the head maid, the head house, yeah. housewoman, and... Uh, you find out later how soon that started. Yeah, that was happening when he was still married. Mm, when she was 15. Oh, it was 15, oh God. Yes. She Ugh. was a kid. Yeah, she, yeah. Uh, anyway, he has a bunch, he has four mixed-race children, mm -hmm. um, and he is not, he's not a very nice father, and it seems like he, he doesn't seem like he's ashamed of his children, but he sure as heck does not have any fatherly love towards he them he doesn't claim them he, yeah he doesn't claim them and it you know the the part at the beginning opening is opening up basically with him complaining about how lazy his field hands are and blah mm -hmm. blah 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 and his daughter i can't remember the name of the daughter uh sally the first one okay sally sally is is talking with with cora and Basically, she's talking about she's going to be going back to... Oh, no, no, sorry. It's not... Sally's not there yet. It's Tom and Cora talking, and Tom is just 
complaining basically about how lazy his field hands are and how nobody appreciates him and how good for nothing everyone is and blah 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 and he's talking about how good Cora has it and I've been taking care of your kids like not our kids but taking care of your kids you know he's been sending them to school and even is scoffing at the whole you know educated n-words and blah 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 being really can I say this? Absolutely. One thing that I will be so glad about with not doing these 1Ks anymore for the rest of the year is that I won't have to say that word you, as much as I have had to say it. You have said it more this month than I think ever, 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 ever. ever. in my life. I, 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 you, I never, ever really heard you ever say it, unless, you know, unless sometimes we were having a philosophical discussion about mm-hmm. something in that related to that nature. But in reading these shows, you have said it enough to fill like 20 NWA albums. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's kind of like, I guess there's, there's the one uh, benefit for some stuff that happened in the pre-K years. Well, not pre-K, <laughs> kindergarten. Luckily, it wasn't that early, but it was close for my first brush with racism. But uh, getting called that and having people try... Because I did have some people try to desensitize me to the hard ER version Um it, it it made it a little bit easier to say it over and over and over in these plays. <laughs> I think also your theater background and the yeah. fact that you are reading a body of work and you are acting the characters probably mm-hmm. helped too. Yeah. Um, but <sighs> boy. Then again, you've done ragtime too. You've been in ragtime, so yeah, you're. I never had to say it. Yeah, but time. you were there when it was being said. <laughs> yeah. And, but anyway, okay, back to back to the review at hand about this. <laughs> So Tom is complaining to Cora about uh, their mixed children and about how educating black people is a w- waste of time and yada, yada, yada. And he's talking about that. And uh, and that's when, uh, shoot, you said her name. Sally. Sal- Sally. I almost said Sarah. Sally comes down and she's dressed up, you know, it, not, well, not dressed up, but she's dressed well. Yeah. And because she's, she's getting ready to go to the train station to go back uh, to school because summer's mm-hmm. over. And... Uh, He's and Tom is basically like looking her up and down kind of thing and being like, oh, are they teaching you basically how to how to cook and be nice to white folk and stuff at that school. And she's like, yeah, yeah, sure they are. We find out later that no, like no, she's, they're not. She's she's learning like work skills so that she can get a job and mm-hmm. support herself like she and not have to come back and not have to come back. Yeah, because he's basically like he it, the mentality is it's like he wants to send his 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 uh his his children uh, to go learn certain skills and then come back and just serve him. Yep. Is, yeah. Because he's talking about that um, her older... Uh, God, you said her name. Sally. Sally's older sister, who I don't remember. Bertha. The, Bertha. He's talking about that, oh, well, she learned how to cook fine, right, you know, at the school that she was at. Now she's working at some, you know, kitchen at a fancy hotel in Chicago kind of yeah. thing. And you find out later that, nope, she is working at an office on a typewriter yeah you know, kind of thing <laughs> and so, that's what sally's and that's what sally's trying to, to do too in secret you know and and uh because it's like you know you're you, you can do more than just cook ladies like mm-hmm. that that if you want to do it go on ahead i mean hey but if you don't then... everybody should know how to cook because mm-hmm. food is wonderful yes. but the whole yes. like your place is the kitchen nonsense yeah. um anyway so tom looks over uh 
Sally and stuff, and and uh, he's like, okay, well, your brother is is he's been back in town over the summer as well, and her brother uh, Robert, don't they call him Herb? Bert, no, Bert. That's what they call him, Bert. And uh, he's he's going to be taking her in in their new Ford to the mm-hmm. train station, and uh, he shows up and stuff, and and he sends his his daughter away and everything, and as uh, that happens. This other old racist white guy who is a, I think he's another, he's another plantation owner, mm-hmm. a friend of the the colonel's. He comes in and he's just complaining about the colonel's son, uh, Robert, who who just barely left with Sally to go take her to the train station. And he's like, oh, he, he you know, cut me off on the road and was driving in front of me and kicking up dust the whole way mm-hmm. here and blah, blah, blah. And back in town, he was arguing, you know, you basically, basically a lot, the, the word uppity N-word gets said a lot. Yes. Because they're saying that Robert's acting like he's a white man and he doesn't know his place and he's putting thoughts into all the other colored men's heads, you mm-hmm. know, making them think that they don't have to you know, live under the heel of the white man and stuff like that. And he's like, ah, he's going to get killed. He's going to get lynched there. You know, you know, mm-hmm. you better have him leave because people are not happy with him and yeah. they're going to kill him. Then he's like, oh, he was yelling at this white lady and scare and made her scream because he was mad about these radio tubes. And like, he's, he's making it sound like Robert was unreasonable. Robert. Yeah. Like Robert was unreasonable. And this will, strike a chord in anyone who knows the story which everyone should know the story of Emmett Till yeah because it's very like it's it's not the exact same thing but it's the whole and y'all I'm uh, I don't know if I should even say I'm sorry because I'm not really but white women's tears are terrifying they are the scariest (laughs) thing (laughs) to a black person yeah yeah, yeah, because history has a yeah history has a number of examples. There's a reason that Cookout Karen and Corner Store Corner Store Carolyn Carolyn and, and uh, Permit Patty yeah Permit Patty. There's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, and they talk about that Robert he had gone to the post office because the, the I don't know if he had ordered radio tubes. Robert or, had okay, he had. And it was COD, and so he had paid, you know, when the package, you know, cash on delivery, so he had paid for it, opened it up, and the radio tubes were shattered and broken. He's like, well, I want my money back, like, kind of thing. And, and uh, the woman wouldn't give money back because it's not pol- uh, pol- uh, post office policy to return money. And mm-hmm. Robert, and then, uh, I don't remember the name of the other white racist guy. It was Higgins. Mm-hmm. Higgins. Um, something about Higgins. Something about Higgins. Plays. Yeah, uh, and Higgins was saying, oh, and he was yelling at the white woman, and then she called for the, you know, the other white clerks to throw him out and stuff like that, and and uh, he got in your Ford and drove away before people could beat the hell out of him kind of mm-hmm. thing, and is what he said. And, and uh, Tom is like, oh, if I had known all that, I would have, you know, smacked him around, before, you, know, you know, before sending him off kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, he talks with with higgins for a while and he's like okay enough about my my progeny who everyone hates Mm. you know how's politics how's you know your crops doing and stuff like that they're talking about and you hear and you hear them complaining about how there isn't enough representation in washington for them Mm -hmm. one thing that made me laugh too was this was before the party switch uh, during civil rights and so yes it is southern guys are complaining about the republicans 
mm-hmm. uh, not looking out for those yeah. good old southern sharecroppers or plantation owners and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And that was that kind of made me go, <laughs> how quaint. Um, I can't remember if it's this point where they bring up some of the stuff that's starting to lead up with Eleanor Roosevelt and a few others who maybe because they did they did I'm trying to remember who they said needs to shut her mouth. I think it was uh, Eleanor Roosevelt that because she was starting to be it, it was where that change yeah, was starting to happen. That's right. That's right. Because it was they're like that Roosevelt woman needs to mm-hmm. shut her teeth or something like that or yeah. So this is where the switch starts to occur. So whenever people say that it never did. Yeah, when people like to say, oh, well, Democrats are the racist ones, or this, it's like, no, those, those parties did switch. Yeah, they, they did a little switch places, and, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, after uh, Higgins and uh, the colonel have a, a drink of some whiskey, he sends uh, Higgins on his way, because he's like, ah, oh, I gotta get back to my place, you know, business is about, I gotta do this and this and that. And after they leave... That's when uh, Tom gets back. Robert, sorry, Rob, yeah, man, I'm bad with names. You're Robert fine. gets back from dropping Sally off at the tra- at the train station, and he parks. I guess it was it's taboo to like park the car in front or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then he walks through the front door like a white man is what they were saying instead of using the back door, mm-hmm. you know. And and that makes people upset mm-hmm. uh, and. What was it? Yeah, because that's basically um, Robert is like, oh, I'm, you want to talk to me kind of thing? and Well, it's it's when, so uh, Thomas and Higgins have left off to go look at his cotton. And Robert comes in and William and Cora are talking. And William is the oldest of that's Cora's right. kids. That's right. And William is darker. And then Sally, Bertha, and Robert are all lighter to the point where Robert looks like his yeah. father. They say that Robert is like, he's white passing, mm-hmm. um, you know, darker than his dad, but still pretty light. Mm-hmm. And he has his dad's eyes and he has his dad's feature and he has his dad's height. And like, he, mm-hmm. he is like, that's the thing. He's like the spitting image of his father, but you know, darker. Just slightly darker. And, yeah. And that's right, because I forgot his brother comes in and he's talking to, you know, his mom and, and, and just basically talking about how Robert's going to be in trouble if he doesn't, you know, act his place kind of thing. Because it seems like the, the oldest brother, he was much more complacent and he didn't yeah. want to rock the boat and stuff. And he he's he's pretty well off for a black man at that time it sounds mm-hmm. like like you know has his own house and and you know he has his family and stuff like that and and uh but he's he's very subservient yes because he he could not pass yes he, he's he's much he's 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 much more like his mom in terms yeah. of skin color yeah and i'm trying to remember that's right that's uh and then uh, robert comes in and and um he has a little bit of a spat with his brother because his brother's telling him you need to be you know you need to stop doing what you're doing stop acting like a, a white man. He's like, but I'm half white. He's like, I'm, I'm gonna act like my white side. I'm not gonna act like my black side. Yeah, kind of thing. And <laughs> Which, that's a problem, y'all. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm Don't gonna... do that. Uh, can <laughs> we all just treat each other with some mutual y- respect, like we're all think. humans? You'd think, but just but no. Robert and William were were talking. William's trying to be a a. a concerned big brother and and set his little brother you know quote unquote straight you know 
um, and he's and Robert's just like, nope. Well, I'm I'm half white. I look like my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, I can pass for white. Like I'm gonna be my white side. And it's like, and and uh, he and they do mention like you did as you're reading. He like gives his his brother older brother like a brotherly punch in the stomach. Like yeah. not assaulting him, but kind of like. Huh, you know, boom, like yeah, as brothers do, and his brother's not having it. <laughs> no, and 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 the Cora ends up sending him home, like you know, once you head home, you know, your your wife, you know, is gonna wanna get dinner ready, and she can't cook with with all with your children underneath her foot. So basically, like, go home and take care of your kids, so your wife can make dinner for the family, and yeah, and they leave, and and then it's just Cora and Robert, and she's basically telling him too, you know, you're acting like a fool, you're gonna get yourself killed and he's like and he he and he that's when you get his side of what happened yeah at the post office and not higgins side mm-hmm. which was very tinted by this uppity n-word was doing this mm-hmm. and he and robert is like no like i you know this is what happened and and that guy paid for it and then i got opened the package and it was broken and i said well can we send this back and she said and there and she then the the woman the woman at the post office didn't want to keep helping him because there were white people behind him mm-hmm. who were next in line so she's like get out of the way let me help these white people yeah and he's like no it's like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'll get out of the way but i'm gonna tell you about what's wrong with this yeah and then that's when she called for she screams and then calls for help. Yeah. Ah! He talked back to me! Mm-hmm. Is basically the extent of the interaction. Mm. And then he talks about that, oh yeah, they, you know, they took took like seven of them to try and throw me out. Because he's also, he's because Robert's a big guy. Like, he yeah. plays football, you know, when he's at school. Like, he's a big, big guy. And he's talking, and he's basically kind of boasting about how many of them it took to throw him out. And then there were other people hanging around outside that saw that a black guy was getting harassed by white people. And they're like, well, we went, we want in on this fun. Yeah. And so he had like 10 people coming after him. And so he's like, well, I knew I couldn't take all of them. So that's when I jumped in the car and sped away, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's another thing that Higgins was talking about. That he said that when Robert was in town, he was just driving through town like a maniac, basically, like yeah. trying to run people over. Yeah, is is the way that he. <laughs> and now you find it. out what really happened. Yeah, and then you find out his side of the story, which is what really happened. And uh, and Cora keeps trying to tell him, "Oh, you gotta know your place. Basically, you're mm-hmm. gonna get yourself killed." And Robert yeah. is is strong willed, and I respect him so much for being like, no. No, like mm-hmm. no, this is dumb, and because he—that's the thing too—is he's he's more educated. He's gone to school. He's, you know, learned more about the world, mm-hmm. and he knows that this is garbage injustice. He's been a, he's been north of the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah, and Cora makes a comment about that too. She's like, I know that you've been reading your books and your papers, and you're smarter than I am, but this is Georgia, mm-hmm. and you gotta, you gotta play ball, kind of thing, mm-hmm. if you want to live. And, uh, and that's, I think that's about the time that, uh, yeah, that's right. That's about the time that scene one ends because, uh, Tom comes home and mm-hmm. as he's coming in through the front, Robert is leaving and through, the, through the, front. the front. Yeah. And Cora's like, no, come out the back, come out the back. He's like, no, I'm not going out that way. And, and as Robert, and as uh, Tom's coming in and he sees Robert heading towards the front door, He's like, you, what are you doing? He's like, he's like, I'm leaving. He's like, well, not through this way. And he's like, you use the back door. And he's like, nope, um, I'm leaving through the front door kind mm-hmm. of thing. And, and they have a, and like Robert goes to, or sorry, Tom goes to like hit Robert with his cane. Like he raises his, his hand and then he doesn't 
do it because they just kind of stare at each other. And they, I remember you as you're reading it, it's like Robert raised himself to his full height, taller than his father, you mm-hmm. know, and they just kind of stared at each other. And, uh, and then, uh, Tom lowers his cane hand, you know, he's not going to hit his son, but instead he decides a better idea is to shamble over to the next room, unlock a, a case, you know, with a key in his pocket and grab a pistol to shoot mm-hmm. him instead. And then he shambles back over as rise up. Robert is leaving and he's got the gun in hand and then Cora goes over there and basically wrestles the gun from him mm-hmm. and that's where the scene one yeah, is. Yeah, saying one that ends. is our son. That, yeah, that's right. That's our son. That's our son. Mm-hmm. That's where act one ends. Remind me where act two opens up. Um, act two opens right around dinner time or supper time and um, Norwood is in the library and Cora is getting Robert ready to talk to Norwood because Norwood wanted to talk to him. And that's where you find out that the first time that Robert had a <sighs> issue with Norwood was because he was this little boy mm-hmm. all excited to see his grand or to see his dad. He was like five, right? Yeah, Something around that. He was, I think, think five or seven yeah, he, he, somewhere he was, in he was, between he was there. young he was yeah young. and goes up and in, in front of some white people that norwood was showing his stables goes papa papa and dinner's ready yeah dinner's ready and norwood just backhands him into one of the stables underneath the horse's feet and then he proceeds to like beat him there like yeah. beats him in the stable in front of the because he's like dare you call me Papa, because yeah. he, you know, his shame of having half-breed children, yeah, and and how dare this, this, this thing acknowledge me as mm-hmm. its father, yeah, just and so he beats his kid, uh, poor little boy, and and Cora talks about that she thought he was gonna kill him, kind yeah. of thing, like it just thought he was gonna kill my kid, and and then that's when I guess after they tell that story, that's when um. Robert goes in to talk to Tom. Mm-hmm. So he goes. Well, in... Tom comes out to talk to him because okay. he's oh, right. about to that's go right. in. That's and right. That's right. And Cora's like, "Oh Cause, cause no, you he's, don't." He's in his study, and and the and uh, Robert is like, "Well, maybe he wants to talk to me." And he's like, "Not in there. Not with his books and and stuff. Like you know that we're not allowed in there." And he's like, "Well, maybe he wants to talk to me in there." And they're like, mm-hmm. "Don't you do that?" Like, basically, and he's like, he's doing the like, "I'm gonna go in there, mom. I'm gonna go in there. Don't mm-hmm. do it. Don't do it." And that's when Tom comes out, basically, and and I can't remember. That's right. They go into a different room. It's not mm-hmm. in his study, but and that's where Tom basically tells him that he's like, "I've been good to your mom, and I've put you and your your siblings, you know, in uh, through school, and I've been good to your brother. He needed help, you know, buying that house. I help him buy that house, you know, for his family. Basically, he's he's doing the whole. I've done so much for you, ungrateful." Mm-hmm. You know, and he uh, calls his son a bastard. Yep, he calls his son a bastard, and because he says, and that's the comment that he makes is, uh, "Colored women don't know the father." Yeah, he make colored women don't know the father, but you're my father. He's like, and he mm-hmm. just and and Robert is really pushing that topic that I am your son. I look like you. Like yeah. I have your eyes. I have your skin like and he's 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 really shoving that in tom's face and tom does not like that Mm -hmm. and 
and I remember at one point he he pulls out a gun and just sets it on the table basically as this ominous mm-hmm. you listen to me and he but then he tells uh Robert the uh I want you out of here. I want you out of the house. I want you out of the state. I want you out of the country. I don't ever yeah. want to see you again. You know, I'm going to have the the taskmaster, whatever his name was. Make sure that, make sure that you leave kind of thing. And, and uh, Robert's like, I'm not going to be chased off of here like some field hand that you don't want anymore kind mm-hmm. of thing. He's like, you know, I'll leave, you know, and I'm going to leave through the front door. Yeah. And he's like, no, you won't. You'll leave through the... And then they, they kind of... That's when... um. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then... So he heads for the stairs. And as he's getting ready to leave, and uh, Tom beats him to the front door, and he's got the pistol pointed at him and stuff. And, and I think that you really get the sense in that scene that uh, Robert wanted to die. Mm-hmm. Um, that he's like, if I can't live with... If I can't live with the decency of a human being, I would rather be dead. Cause he's like saying, yeah. I am, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mixed raced. Everybody wants to treat me like my black side and ignore my white side, mm-hmm. but I'm choosing to be treated like my white side. Yeah. And he's like, and if I can't have that, then I don't want to live. Yeah. And as he's walking, basically walking towards his father, father's like, I'll shoot you. I'll shoot you. And then he like, then Tom or Robert gets close enough and he grabs like, his dad's arm and twists it and the gun drops and he's telling him like, why didn't you shoot? Why didn't you shoot? And then he grabs him. He's choking him and he's lifting him up and choking the life out of him and just being like, why didn't you shoot? Huh? You could have killed me. Why didn't you shoot? And he's basically just venting all of his frustration out onto his father as he chokes the life out of him. Yeah. And he's, and I love it that he, he chokes him to death and he's still holding his, his lifeless body in the air while he's venting at him. Yeah. And that's when Cora is like, Robert, what are you doing? She comes running down, and that's when he drops the body, and it collapses to the floor. And Cora's, like, over the body, like, Tom, 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 like, trying to wake him up. But he's dead. He's dead. And that's when she's like, you need to, like, she tells her son, you need to go. You, you like, you, and he, that's right, because he, he, he grabs the gun, and he's showing it to his mom. He's like, he could have shot me. Like, he, he could have, sh- oh, and he made, he made a line when he was talking to his dad earlier that he he would kill all the white people in the world if he could just yes. because of the way that they treat black people mm-hmm. and uh and uh his dad makes a comment of like you know if anybody other than me had heard you say that you would be lynched like yeah. right now basically yeah and uh but when he picks up the gun he says i'm going to use this to kill all the white people in the world you know mm-hmm. and, and they're going to be coming after me now you know but now i can i can defend myself is kind of the gist of that scene and he puts the gun you know in his pocket and that's when his mom is like you need to go like get out of here run head towards the swamp you know make sure you walk through water dogs can't smell through water yeah because she's basically just like telling her son like you know the crap has hit the fan they're gonna come for you i don't want them to get you yeah. I don't, you know, it's more of she's like, I don't care that you killed him. I don't want you to die. Yeah. And so she sends him out and he goes. And then that's about the the time that is Higgins, right? Higgins and someone else shows up too? Um, or is it some? Yes. Yeah. And she had told, and he had told her that, well, if they catch up to me, I'm coming back here. That's right. Yeah. He says, if they catch me, if I don't make it to the swamp, then I'm going to come back here. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, and I guess that that part is talked about um, with the dad when he's basically telling 
his son, get out of here. Like, Higgins and the others are coming over to talk about Cotton, and I don't want you around here. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that kind of alludes to, so after he kills him and he flees, that's when Higgins and the other guys show up to talk about Cotton. And they, and they basically, and that's the thing too, is they come up to the house and they're like, you know, man, he's leaving out through the front door like a white man, thinks that he owns the place. And mm-hmm. and they see Cora and they're talking to Cora. Cora like, hey, what the da 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 And she's just kind of in shock and she's not responding to them. And also I think that she does, she's trying to buy time for her son. Yes. By being silent. And that's when they start looking around and they see that, that Tom is dead. They're like, oh, he, he killed him. His bastard son killed him, and mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then they oh, go get, you know, the, there's a phone in that room. Go call the the sheriff. And that's when they, then that's when they're just like, oh, we're gonna kill him. You know, we're gonna mm-hmm. get all the boys together, go round him up, and and they're telling how they're gonna lynch him, and... like right in front of their the mom and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then they ask her some more questions. I don't remember, but she doesn't respond, and they're just like dumb n word, you know. Mm-hmm. And then they leave the house, and. There is a very interesting, uh, I don't know, she doesn't, she doesn't go insane, but she starts tiptoeing on that line. Yeah, she, it, it, it reminds me of the, of the, the other play you read. Rachel. Yeah, with Rachel. It very much reminded me of that because mm-hmm. it's just, it's just Cora and Tom's dead body mm-hmm. and she starts venting to him like all the built-up frustration that she has kept silent for 30 years 30 years she just starts laying into him you know talking about how like like the k had mentioned the first time that you know he had his way with her she was 15 and he told her well you're so pretty and Mm -hmm. said nice things about her and and they they ended up being together underneath a tree in like the summertime and and she and the way that she talks about it it was very romantic to her Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about how when his wife was still alive, she was pregnant with, like, Cora was pregnant with their first kid, you know, even when his wife was still alive, and then his wife died, and he never remarried, but instead he started having Cora, you know, mm-hmm. sleeping in his bed with him kind of thing, and they talked about that they had five kids, but one of them died, like, yeah, I don't know if died in birth or died early, but regardless, they, you know, and so she's going through their kids, talk about, you know, we had, uh, Oh, shoot, what was the first one? Sam, William. William. They had William. You know, William was he, was, he was dumb and dark like me, which I, she said that and I was like, ugh, like that. Yeah. But, you know, after everything that's in this show, I'm, you know, I shouldn't just focus on that line. Anyway, and she starts going through, you know, William was dumb and dark like me, but then Bertha and, and, uh, Sally and Robert, you know, are light like you and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she, but yeah, she's, Laying into him about grievances, just being like, I always, you know, I came to you when you called me, you know, I, I took care of you like a wife would do kind mm-hmm. of thing. And, and I, I begged and pleaded on my knees, you know, for you to, to give our children a better life than they would have normally and mm-hmm. kind of thing like that. And she's just, and you did, you gave a really powerful performance too, <laughs> like reading it, hun. And as she's venting about that, like that goes on for a while where she's venting all this frustration to Tom's lifeless body. And, uh, oh yeah. And like, there was one point where she's telling like, you know, I asked you, because this is where I was saying, like she kind of tiptoes on that crazy line because she talks about like, why aren't you getting up and helping your son? Why aren't you doing this kind of thing? It's like, well, he's dead. Mm. Like she's like, well, you're out chasing him with them. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, it's she goes a little over the crazy l- edge. You know, a little bit because her and it's because she witnessed her, a murder. She was, well, yeah, she of did. Her, she, of her she, master she, and she, yeah, her, her f- children's father. She witnessed a murder, but she's also dealing with the fact that she knows her son is going to die. Yes. And yeah, and she does talk about that. She loved all of her kids, but she loved Robert the most because she knew he was the one who needed the most love Mm -hmm. because he was strong headed like his father. He was stubborn like his father. Mm -hmm. Like she knew that he was going to have a hard time because he was so much like his father, but because he wasn't white, he wasn't going to be able to get away with it. Yeah. And that attitude. I can't remember if it's, this monologue or the one in the last scene where she is talking about the fact that her and this is what hit me because it was like a reverse for me a little bit in that um you know my dad's black but i know where uh robert's going with this with his white dad where He loved you so much. You were his favorite. He wanted nothing but to be loved by you. And then as soon as you hit him and beat him and all of that, which that never happened to me, luckily, but he hated you and you were dead to him. And it's like, oof, that's a knife to the heart there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, after, after Korra... Sorry, do you have something else? Oh, I was going to say, because I know what it's like to look up to your dad and want to be just like him and be be the apple of his eye, and then he betrays your trust. And it's irreparable, and yeah, Yeah. I know how that feels. And it's, yeah, (laughs) this plays a little heavy for me. So after... The, uh, the venting of Korra to Tom's corpse goes on for a little while, and then it ends as she can hear the commotion of of people at sound, and she's like, you know, that's Robert coming back. Like, they caught up mm-hmm. to him. He didn't make it to the swamp. He's coming back, and basically he's mm-hmm. going to die here. Yeah. And uh, she can hear, you know, the dogs barking and people yelling and stuff like that, and Robert comes burst, and they, she, they hear gunshots. That's after she's talking. That's after the Undertakers take Tom's body. Oh! Oh, that's and have right. just the, the oh that the was horrible okay worst oh so ooh. so yeah k is ooh. right k is right after she talks to that the then it kind of cuts to scene two of act two and the undertaker is there and they've taken tom's body and the undertaker oh, and that's right because uh 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 william is there william mm-hmm. is, is back at the house kind of comforting his mom and seeing over affairs and the undertaker is talking about that he's talking to william about uh the whole thing and he's being very direct to i don't know if he knows that william is related to robert Mm -hmm. or not but he's basically just like they're gonna kill him they're gonna kill him good like just saying that to this brother they're gonna kill your brother basically and uh william is doing his best to like "Uh uh-huh yep uh oh that's sam that's doing the yes sir yes sir because sam is the attendant for uh because William doesn't come back in oh. until later. That's Sam, who's one of uh, Tom's attendants. Oh, he's, who... he's his manservant. Uh-huh. Okay, that's right. So you're and saying that... Sam is, like, being very overly... Yes, sir. Uh-huh, yep. sir. Uh-huh. Because he yes, knows that sir. these white folks are in a lynching mood. Yes, and 
he does not want to be part of no, this. No, he does not. I don't. His self-preservation. It's he's yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah he's he is playing ball. He's playing ball mm-hmm. for all nine innings. Um, yep. Seven innings, whatever it is in baseball. I don't nine. Nine K. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so anyway, yeah, the the uh, the Undertaker is is talking to to Sam about that and everything, and then he's he tells him, uh, oh yeah, we, we want to have a me and Higgins want to have a drink before we leave, kind of, or mm. not maybe not Higgins, whoever else was there with him. Yeah, They're like we want to have a drink before we leave, and Sam's like, oh well, well Cora has the the key to the liquor, and he's like, well then go get her, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like we ain't gonna leave until we have our whiskey. And then, and he's also like, oh, yeah, and I want to get a look at Cora. Like, yeah. In a really creepy, like, well, now that Tom's not around to diddle her, you mm-hmm. know, that means she has an opening giggity. Like, yeah. And so he has Sam go and get Cora, and Cora comes down, and you get the, the line with him. Well, I guess not the line, but he just, he's looking her up and down, looking her over, kind of thing. Oh, you were living with him like a wife, and you bore his children, and just, just being a a real creepy racist. Yeah. Um, but then he tells them, you know, get us a drink kind of thing. And she goes and get some drinks and, and it's like, I'll have Sam take one out to so-and-so who's sitting in the car with Tom's body. But then he talks, he's, he's basically taunting Cora and he's like, they're going to kill your son. Like, how would you like to see your son hanging from the tree? You mm-hmm. know, when you wake up, like, full of bullet holes, and mm-hmm. maybe they'll burn him. Mm-hmm. Like, how would you like to see his burnt body strung up? Like, and he, and she's just, and just not, she is, uh, keeping her calm. She's not letting him goad her into a confrontation mm-hmm. or outrage kind of thing, and that's when we get the Robert returning, right? It's or after the leave? Undertaker leaves. So they do leave. Yeah, okay. they leave, and she has another monologue just again venting just mad and uh before she has her monologue william comes back and is just like i'm leaving i've got to get out of here <gasps> that's and right she's just yeah you go you that's go right. as fast as you can talk about because they're like because the fact that because really the only reason that they were safe was because tom was alive and now that tom is dead they none of them feel safe yeah like that was like all the field hands are leaving to like everybody is getting out of there. Everybody with any melanin is leaving. Yeah, and, and Cora is like, no, I'm staying here because Robert's coming Robert's back. Robert's going to be coming and back. And she has a spot that she has sawed in the floor for him. If a hiding he, spot. Yeah, hiding spot if he needs to be there. But, you know, she is waiting and William's just like, okay, well, I can't make you leave, so. I'll, I, love, I love you, Mom. Uh, yeah, I love you, Mom. I'm taking my mother-in-law, my wife, and my kids. Yeah, he's, like I, got, out. he's like, I got my kids I got to worry about. And, yeah. and so they leave. And then after he leaves, that's when Robert comes back. And mm-hmm. you hear the shouting and the, the dogs and the commotion. You hear gunfire. And Robert bursts through the door, the front door, and he's returning fire mm-hmm. out into the dark and stuff. And, and he's... And basically he's telling his mom yeah i couldn't make it I, I couldn't get there i had to you know i came back like i said i would if they caught me kind of thing and and his mom's like there's a spot under my go upstairs there's a spot under my bed you know that i've sawed you know for you to hide kind of thing and uh he's like i'm i don't want he's like i don't want to do this mom like i he's like i'm tired mm-hmm. like i've been running so much i don't want to do this anymore he's like i got one bullet left and that's that's for me. I'm not letting them take me. Yeah. And she's like, and she's like, you do what you need to do. But she's just like, go upstairs and rest. Like, go upstairs and rest go, for a bit. Go upstairs and go to sleep. Yeah, go upstairs and go to sleep. And he's t- 
telling, you know, basically, I love you, Mom. Like, he's basically they're saying their goodbyes. Yeah. And he goes upstairs, and that's when the the mob comes in. They're like, where is he? Da-da-da. And mm-hmm. she doesn't say anything. She just barricades the steps, and it's like he is going upstairs right. to go to that's sleep. That's right. He's going, he's going to, he's gone to bed. Mm-hmm. He's gone, to, he's gone to sleep. And mm-hmm. then they're like... I can't remember if they push her out of the way or if they force their way past her. No, they hear one single gunshot. But then somebody does go yes, up. Yes, and she's just like, he has gone yeah, he has... to sleep. And then they go up and... Like, we're too late, man. Mm-hmm. And then Talbot comes back down and smacks her, and she just stands there and looks at him. And I, I they, need to... The, yeah, read that line. I will read the that, last line of the play. That was it so is good. amazing. It's it's one of those like Latte's funny. She's Langston so Hughes, man. She is so ready for us to be done. She is. She's, She's like, like, I'm bored. I want my dinner. Yeah. So the uh line after the too late men were just a little too late. A sigh of disappointment rises from the mob. Talbot comes down the stairs, walks up to Cora, and slaps her once across the face. She does not move. It is as though no human hand can touch her again. Curtain. Yeah, I just love that image that it's like she, it's like he smacked a statue. Yeah. And just. Yeah. It was. Ugh. Huh. So that show was really good. Like it was, it's hard, it's hard, it's heart wrenching. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it, whether you're black or white or in between. Or a different race. Or a different race. Like it, Mm -hmm. it, it. Oh, Cooper. It brings up feelings. Mm -hmm. Anybody who is a thinking, feeling human, it would bring up emotions in. Yes, it does. And it was. You can hear Latte in the background agreeing. Protesting hard. Yeah. Um, It's, it's one of those things where Langston Hughes does a really good job with the complexities Yes. Of this issue. Because... He, I was so impressed with you that. You have the whole gamut of... You have the mixed-race people who know that they have to toe the line, at least in front of white people. You have the mixed-race people who... Can pass as white. Can pass as white, and who are going like, okay, well, I'm... You have the ones who are like, yeah, I'm black, even though I'm mixed race. You have the ones who are like, well, in order to survive, I need to pass as white up north. And then you have Robert, who is the, well, I'm half white. Shouldn't I get what I want? And so you have the whole gamut of the different attitudes, thanks to the racism that perpetuated this colorism in the first place. And it's like... It's it's one of the best ways of tackling that issue that I've seen. And you know, it's it's like man, I it's one of my favorite plays even though it hurts cuz it's that's Langston the, Hughes. That's the thing though. Is yeah. It's like I hate everything I hate everything about this play, mm-hmm. but it is so incredibly well done and it's so incredibly impactful and powerful. And important. And important. It just, it's, it's this weird feeling of being like, wow, I really hate this subject material, but boy, does he do a good Mm -hmm. job Mm -hmm. tackling the subject material. Yes, he does. And yeah, I, huh, because it's, it's a really complicated issue. And if, if you're, what am I trying to say? I'm, I don't know. 
I my energy has been sapped by this. <laughs> yeah, you did a lot of reading, and yeah, and it's also a very emotionally uh, complicated topic, especially yes, for someone like you who yeah. has lived part of that. Yeah, so. like it's 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 heavy, but it's important, and it's important to see the evolution of that too and I, that's again why i chose this play over any of the other ones that tackle the subject because langston hughes can cover it with some nuance that a lot of people don't really do <sighs> so yeah this play this play hits me hard yeah. it doesn't hit as hard as rachel but it does hit hard <laughs> rachel hits harder because i get empathetic for that little boy yeah rachel yeah rachel rachel that's the thing rachel did hit harder but it was very i don't know it was just so different there mm -hmm. wasn't i felt like there there wasn't as much going on with rachel but it did put a magnifying glass on mm -hmm. what it did cover mm -hmm. with this one it it tackled much more of the the dynamic of living in that world mm -hmm. uh i don't know but it's they're all good and they all hurt it it grabbed that double consciousness and pulled it to the forefront in this in mulatto very well put it it basically went want to see double consciousness here you go oh, yeah <laughs> yeah it's y'all get black theater usa uh, both parts of them. This one is from the recent period, 1935 to today. Get both of these books. I'm going to be talking about them a lot in the coming years, so get them both because they're both fantastic. Amazing collections of plays in them. That way, too, you can read some of these like Mulatto and uh, Rachel and... Yeah. Yeah. So... Are you ready to hear what we're doing next week? Dear God, yes. Is it is it is it up or down from here? Um, it's eh? a little okay. bit. A little little bit of an incline. Okay. A little bit of an incline because so we're gonna be going into the Great Depression era. Oh, so a happy time for everyone. Happy time for everyone, but we are going to be going back to the main subject of. What our podcast is with musicals. Yay! And we are going to be covering, covering Heaven in Harlem, which is a very old musical. It is black and white. Not the best sound quality, but you get what you can get. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I want to do Heaven in Harlem and then 10 Minutes to Live. And if I can try to get to the 40s, I will, but we'll see. Um, and yeah, I, cause we've just got, uh, I believe we've only got three more episodes until the month is over. Um, and then we, we've been talking about doing something special to lead into March with, mm -hmm. but that will be a thing to talk about later when we get to March, but something wink, wink, special nudge, will nudge. be coming. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And that will be also when our explicit tag gets put back on. Because <laughs> Warren will need it. 
Oh boy, will I? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're we're gonna be doing Heaven in Harlem. I want to try to get Ten Minutes to Live as well because those are two of the early black movie musicals and have a lot of uh, appearances of some stars that either come late, like you'll see more of later, or it's like a last appearance for a star. So that's going to be what we cover next week. So we're on to movie musicals next week. Yay! Yay! So thank you all for listening. Uh, I hope that this episode is good. <laughs> I kind of vented a little bit. It's okay. It's heavy subject material. It is very and it's heavy. material that you know intimately. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, you could say that it's in your blood. Jesus. <laughs> this subject is not just skin deep. Uh, so thank you all for listening if you want to follow us on twitter it's tone deaf musical facebook tone deaf musical instagram tone deaf musical you can find links to all of those on our website tone as well as a link to the cast junkie discord server if you want to join our patreon uh it's also tone deaf musical and uh cooking up a little thing for patrons as well Ooh. that uh I need to see if Mama Kay has access to something, but... Do I smell what you're cooking for the patrons? Possibly. I was attempting to make a rock reference, and then I think I kind of fumbled it. <laughs> Do you smell what Kay is cooking? Gonna be heating up some food in the microwave in five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, patrons, keep an eye out, because... If I can get a hold of something, going to be something special for patrons only. I'm hoping. Hoping. So, yeah, that'll that'll do us do it for us for this week. Thank you all so much again for listening. I'm Kay. I'm Warren. And this has been Tone Deaf. Tone Deaf.